0: This week's episode of the Villain News Podcast is brought to you by Jordana. Again, it's Jordana, not Giordana. Giordana, it's Giordana. The Giordana Sagittarius logo has been a staple of the Pro Peloton for decades, made in Italy for cyclists, by cyclists since 1979. Thanks to a long history of partnerships with the top teams in the sport, they have the knowledge to deliver clothing that the pros rely on. Today it's not just Mitchelton Scott and the Astana Pro teams that benefit. Giordana's goal is to empower every rider to reach new heights. That's the drive that constantly pushes them to create and innovate. Everything Jordana makes is designed to enhance cycling performance and enjoyment, whether you're a professional or a weekend warrior. So, right now, if you go to Jordanacycling.com, that's G I O R D A N A cycling.com, check out to see what's new. For a limited time, you can get 25% off your purchase when you use the code PODCAST. Again, jordanacycling.com select the cool stuff they have there use the code podcast at checkout and get 25% off your purchase 25% off that is a big discount Uh, thanks again to Jordana for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast let's get on with the show Hey guys, before we get onto the show, I want to uh, let you all know about a big project that we've been working on here at Vela News, and that is the launch of our new website, VelaNews.com. Uh, you may have seen that it is completely redesigned, clean, Fresh, Wonderful look. looks great on your mobile phone. But I want to alert you to in the upper right-hand corner of the website, there is a button that says join because you can join VeloNews.com and personalize your site. As you may know, Velo News is part of the family of endurance sports publications that includes Triathlete Magazine, Podium Runner, Women's Running. We have reporters out there writing about endurance sports of all sorts of types and variety. And if you join Velonews.com, you can personalize your feed to get content about cycling, running, triathlon, swimming, yoga, strength you can access content being written on some of the other sites about important things like recipes and strength training and proper nutrition. Or if you want to uh, follow up on all the news that's going on in the sports of distance running or triathlon or even swimming, you can have that intermingle with your news and information about cycling as well. Again, Go to VeloNews.com, Find the box in the upper right hand corner of the homepage. Um, it takes a couple minutes to join. It's all free, but you can personalize your feed to get information from the various endurance sports that you love or want to learn more about. Okay. Let's get on to the podcast. Uh, Welcome back. Welcome back to the Bell News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you from a sunny Tuesday in Lafayette, Colorado. We have so much to talk about on this week's episode of the podcast. The UCI has released a competition schedule for the fall and there are overlapping dates and classics being held alongside Grand Tours. And if you're a professional bicycle racer or working for a team, you are just going to be jetting around Europe uh, going to all these races which are being uh, squeezed in from August until November. But hey, it's something. We have a great schedule. And so we're going to just dig into this schedule for the first half of the, half of the show. Um, hot takes, cold takes, analysis, conclusions, knee-jerk reactions. We got it all. We're going we're gonna to supply you with the perspective you need on this calendar uh, to take you forward. Um, second half of the show. We're going to have a discussion about the Giro d'Italia because I'm recording this on May 5th. Of course, the Giro is not happening right now. It is going to be held later in the year. But uh, the fact that it's May, it's the first week of May, I I am very um, nostalgic for the Giro. And so we are going to have a preliminary discussion about the Giro, its cultural space in pro cycling, some of the perspective we have on it from riders and media who have covered it from for ages and ages. And hopefully this is going to just increase your stoke for the Giro when we finally have a Giro at some point in the near future. My guests today, you know them as the European voices of Vela News. It's James Start and Andrew Hood. Hoodie, we're going to start with you because Spain has lifted its ban on outdoor activity, which means cyclists can go ride around. It sounds like you have gotten out and ridden your bicycle. How did it feel to spread your
1: wings and uh, fly around in the sunshine for a couple hours? Indeed. This, over the weekend, they uh, allowed the general public out for the first time since May, March 15th, you know, 45 days in the whole... I think there's a song that has that uh, lyrics, uh-huh. and um, it's, it just felt like complete liberation uh, after riding the indoor trainer. Actually, no, know, it felt pretty good on the flats, but the thing was there were so many people out I mean, in the entire town where I live. Everyone's on the streets. The safest place to ride is on the road because there's still not much traffic at all, but all the sidewalks and the paseos and the uh, bike paths are just jam-packed. Suddenly everybody's a runner or a cyclist or a, in Blade Skater, uh, but there's, there's some restrictions still in place. You can only ride from 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. and then from 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. is when you're allowed to go outside. They kind of staggered it. They have the kids and the grandparents going out midday. So, so it's the first step. You know, that's part of this de-escalation. Uh, the rough plan is to have stores open in two weeks and then two weeks after that to have uh, limited uh, restaurant and hotels opening as well, which is very important to the Spanish economy. And, of course, to anyone that enjoys, enjoys a nice uh, glass of Rioja, looking forward to that in a, in a few weeks' time, hopefully.
0: In talking with your friends and relatives there, I mean, what is the overall attitude towards this reopening? Do people feel it's premature? Are people just champing at the bit to get out and get the Rioja and the tapas in them? What um, I'm really curious to know how people, how people view the decision to reopen.
1: I think most people are on board with this whole uh, process the government's laid out. Uh, they've been sending a pretty consistent message from the beginning. Um, You know, everything's been kind of based on the science. Everyone kind of agrees with the whole concept of social distancing and everyone's wearing a mask. I don't think it's quite obligatory to wear a mask in public, but you do when you have to go inside of a shop or if you're on a bus or any sort of uh, indoor space. So, um, yeah, I mean, everybody was ready to get outside. The kids were locked in. I think Spain had some of the most extreme conditions really in Europe. So everybody was very happy to be outside, but at the same time, people were taking it very seriously. Now, James –
0: in Paris, your restrictions have not lifted yet. However, there is an opening date, I believe, this coming week. Um, how about the attitudes in France towards the way the government has dealt with um, assigning these restrictions, monitoring the situation, and informing the population? How are people feeling about that?
2: Um, you know, okay. I and mean, there's been some, obviously, some criticisms of government. And I think. Uh, you know, and, and that's understandable. But um, if you look at the, the the constrictions in France, as opposed to where Andy has been for the last month, or where uh, our Italian friends are at, it's, it's 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 still been a little bit more reasonable. Um, and it's not you know, it's it's still not easy. We're all starting to get pretty stir crazy. It's going on. This will be two months for us uh, on the eleventh when we can come out. But you know, a little more a little more freedom than uh, than Italy or Spain. Even though our numbers are just about as devastating, to be honest, I think we're within 500 um, uh, of Spain uh, right now. But the, you know, the, the best news is that numbers are really coming down uh, very quickly. Um, so that curve is flattening, and that's what you got to you hope for. We will be opening up gradually, but more by region. And France's uh, Paris is one of the. Harder hit regions. So, this will be the the red zone, like most of the east uh, around Perry Roubaix and out in that area. Um, So, we'll be the least open, uh, but that will mostly affect the kinds of conditions of stores and things like that, I believe. The biggest news is that we are allowed to go, as far as I know, ride our bikes uh, at any hour of the day.
0: So, no more uh, putting the trainer on your rooftop and working on the tan lines. You're actually going to be able to ride on the roads uh and work on those tan lines Well, the air is flowing yeah. through your hair
2: well i felt actually very fortunate to have that little space at we have a fairly big building and a, and a rooftop that wasn't like made for uh, socializing or anything but it's perfectly it's, it's large enough and safe enough to accommodate my home trainer and myself and um and it was just quiet up there and it was a way to kind of get away from it all um so it, it was actually really wonderful and uh I may on occasion do that again uh, because, you know, in a, it's very it, – as opposed to riding in my kitchen, it's much easier to put the bike up on the roof and ride and I can ride a little bit longer and, and harder. And I may do that if I'm short on time just want to get in an hour. Um, we'll see. But mostly I'm going to be happy to to be off of that roof and get out on the roads.
0: What's going to be your first ride back?
2: Uh, as long as As long as long it's not raining, I want to go out into the Valley Chivers, which is south. And when I came over here as a bike racer, uh, that was like the first ride I ever took. And I live on the south side of Paris because when I was racing bikes, I wanted to be able to get out of the city quickly, and that was the best uh, way. And the teams I was racing for were based on in, sub, in the south in Paris, so I'll go down and re-find my old uh, training roads. Uh, and there's just lots of wonderful little farm roads and uh, single lane, uh, you know, cap, uh, farm roads, and uh, it's it's a great way to get away from Paris very very quickly. Awesome. Well, hey, guys, let's dig
0: into it. Um, this announcement came down just a couple hours ago. The UCI um, had originally delayed the uh, release of its calendars by a week. It sounds like they wanted to make sure that the men's and the women's calendars were in, um, you know, fit for print level of uh, put togetherness before they release them. And so we got this. We have this 2020 calendar. The men's calendar is beginning August 1st with Strada Bianca. In August, we'll have Strada Bianca Tour of Poland, Milano San Remo, Dauphiné, uh, Presidential Ride London Classic, uh, and then the big one, the Tour de France, which is running the end of August through September. Um, September, there's some more classics in there. We have Tirreno Adriatico, the two races in Canada, Pink Bang Tour, Flesh Wallone, And then in October is the big one. October, we have Overlapping dates between the Giro, between uh, all of the big one-day classics, and the first week of the Welta. So October is going to be the biggest month of the 2020 pro cycling career because, I mean, look at this, like, Giro, then we have Liege, Bastogne Liege, Amstel, uh Flanders. I mean, there's just all these races falling one right after the other. Um, women's calendar. We also have a very good women's calendar, with the big announcement that October 25th, we have a women's Paris-Roubaix. Um, all of those uh, messages we've gotten out of ASO for the past however many decades or years that having a women's pair roubaix was just never going to happen. It was too hard to do. They've somehow found a way to do it. So right now is on, on the calendar. Um, jump ball for both of you. I'll start with you, Andy. When this schedule was first put out there and you started looking through it and looking at the dates, what were the... What was the storyline that jumped out at you
1: about this calendar? I think the, the real thing that stands out to me is the fact that there is almost no racing before the Tour de France. Uh, if you consider how much work goes into a tour, how meticulous teams are at planning, high-altitude training camps, everything's building towards tapering off at the, at the peak of your fitness in July – you know, none of that's going to be available and realistic now under the conditions we live in. I mean, as James just said, you know, guys can't even still ride their bikes outside. A lot of question marks about if we can even cross national borders. So it's going to be just a completely unprecedented approach to the Tour. In fact, having the Tour as the first race of the Grand Tours, you know, in front of the Giro, that's another twist. Um, And I think it also just kind of revealed, you know, how – how I think uh, all the interests lined up to say let's just save what we can. It's not perfect. It's far from perfect, but I think it's really you have to kind of tip your hats to everybody uh, within the cycling community, kind of circle the wagons and and deliver this. You know, again, of course, it's with the uh, you know you don't we don't really know if it's going to happen or not, but uh, to have this right now, you know, it, it shapes up fairly well. I think uh, I think it's pretty. I think it's pretty exciting. And you, James? When you looked at this and started
0: just looking at the dates on the calendar, what was popping out to you?
2: Well, i i start out by I started out by looking at this as a big giant wish list, um, and I think that I would be surprised if all of these races happen. That would be really a miracle. But they're there. I think um, you know, depending on the evolution of the virus around Europe and the world, certain countries are. Probably not going to be, you know, or certain authorities. I mean, I don't think they've been able to get appro- um, the, you know, approval of all government authorities on, on these things. This is what they hope to do. And depending on how uh, the virus evolves, it very well may be some of these races that just fall by the wayside. But um, I thought it was a relatively reasonable um, calendar. Uh, obviously, there's no conflict with anybody who wants to race classics and the tour. Um, then obviously, if you want to get the Giro or the Welta, you're going to have to make some choices. But all the big names can be at all the big classics and, and the Tour de France. Um, and I think that's pretty. Between Poland and, and the Dauphiné, if that in fact happens, well, that'll be what it is. There could also be, we could also see some smaller races that are not World Tour races being added. Uh, tour de Limousin, if that was on there uh, there's smaller races uh, Tour de Lens in France is usually in August, I don't know if they're going to work that in, I think that this is the world tour calendar, so we may see that there's actually a few more races before the tour um, but again, this is all speculation um, and uh, I think it's going to be a, you know, it's it's it's, it's doable uh, I, I, I think, you know, one thing you go, well, how are you going to do it how the team's gonna do all this, well I think that they're not gonna have any I don't think the teams are gonna have any problem doing it. Um everybody, everybody's gonna be fresh. Not you're know, not gonna have like five guys injured. Everybody's gonna be fresh. Uh, generally you're gonna have you know every team, World Tour team has at least you know the capacity to be racing on three fronts at any time. And most of the time here, they're not gonna to have to race on more than two fronts. Uh, the biggest thing would be, you know, some of the staff or riders getting stuck in a country or not being able to get to a race because of their own domestic uh, restrictions, but I, you know, I think it's, it's doable. I think it's doable, and it's going to be a power pack season um, and, and exciting. I love, you know, Milan San Remo in the summertime. I think that's great. Uh, Paribebay at the end of this, at the end of the season, why not uh, Lombardi uh, Bianchi in uh, you know, August? I'll go to Italy in August. I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> I'm with you,
0: James. You know, with the the this is a wish list. Um throughout this whole process I've been having so many different thoughts about the overall concept of trying to bring racing back and like what does sports mean in a time of crisis and should we be trying to pl- bring back sports? And look, if you're one of those people, you see a lot of these people on Twitter who's just like, you know, we should not even be trying to bring this stuff back. We just cancel everything, throw it in the garbage can, you know, hit the reset button. I get it. Um I can't, you know I'm I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. I guess I will disagree with you in the fact that I I see no I see no harm in putting together a schedule and a plan to bring sports back. Um, sports are valuable to societies, they're valuable to our lives. Yes, they uh, hold up these sort of make-believe economies of media and teams and races and the entire sport. And if you didn't have a calendar like this, I think you could make a very decent argument that some of these races and some of these teams would go away forever. So by having a target on the calendar – it provides incentive for riders to start training and teams to start planning and sponsors of teams to keep writing checks to those teams and sponsors of races to keep writing checks to those races to keep income coming in and keep people employed. But beyond that, it, it gives hope to fans and populations that um, normalcy to regular life is is going to come back a bit at a time. I mean, you guys are living in countries where they are allowing people outside for the first time and opening shops for the first time. So life is going to return to normal. Um, And this is just another wider part of that discussion of like, hey, the, the, the traditions and the events and the festivals that we have are going to come back at some point. Now, look, ultimately, yeah. Race directors, they have no power over whether these races come back. At the end of the day, it's going to be government officials and health officials and, you know, politicians in France and Italy and Spain that are going to make the final call on this. Um, And so there is a bit of moot point to this, which is, okay. we have it on the calendar. Is it actually going to happen? We don't really know that, you know, that's up for – for to governments to decide but i think it's it i don't think it's a bad thing to have these things on the calendar and again i see people on twitter all the time that are saying oh this is terrible this is going to cost lives this is you know this is the worst thing ever and i i guess i i would pump the brakes on that a little bit but as we dig into the nitty-gritty of this calendar um you know there's been this discussion about hey you know this time off from racing, this time off from life in general allows us to rethink the way we do things or allows us to rethink the calendar. And maybe this is the opportunity that cycling needs to, like, you know, do the Rafa roadmap or do the, you know, the, some weird overhaul of the calendar to come up with a more efficient storyline to take us through the season. Um, when I look at this uh, calendar, this is not it. <laughs> this is definitely, like, <laughs> squish everything in there and make sure we get to it. Um, You know, I I don't know, like, come October, if there's some big Giro stage that's going on at the same time as, like, uh, the Tour Flanders or Amstel. I don't know which one I'm going to watch. Like, that's kind of a headache from a fan perspective. But whatever, you know, we have racing. Um, It's returned. Now, a question I have for you, Hoodie, and James, is from a team infrastructure standpoint. You know, these World Tour teams, they employ... Dozens of staffers and DSs, they have these big rosters of 26, 28 riders. When we start to get into October and we see overlap with two Grand Tours and all of these one-day classics, um, what type of pressure do we think that's going to be putting on these World tour teams? Are they big enough and um, deep enough to be able to like field full rosters and teams of staff, mechanics ds's to like hit maybe three giant races in three different countries
1: that's going to be the the big question i think we'll i think we'll see some wiggle room going forward as some of the more of the details and nuances get picked through this calendar and kind of give teams an out if they want i know there's already been a discussion to basically eliminate all the points and all the standings from this year's calendar already so if a team you know we're already seeing several teams being stressed out financially. So they might not be able to actually even just afford to send uh, three squads around Europe at the same time. So I think we'll have some flexibility built into this once we get closer to the actual assumption of racing, if it happens. So that if a team says, Hey, you know, we can't do Torino," you know, the same week we're doing uh, whatever it's scheduled as. So um, I think they will see some uh, teams have to opt out of some of these races but in terms of the teams that have the financial wherewithal, you know, Team Enos, you know, some of these bigger teams, Trek, fully funded right now. Uh, they have all their staffing in place and they should be able to get their riders to these races. We've already seen as part of this what was released today as well that uh, the number of riders per race will be reduced, not during the Grand Tours, uh, but during these one week stage races. You can take one less rider per team if you want, as well as during the Classic. So, yeah, you'll have full eight eight rider rosters during the grand tours, but the rest of the races, they can bring one less rider if they want to, maybe a little bit fewer staffers. But I think, uh, I think everybody will find a way to make this happen if they can.
2: Yeah. Don't, um, don't forget everybody wants to race. Uh, having too many races is not a problem. Uh, I mean, there may be some, I, I don't think that the UCI is going to make everybody go to every race. Uh, for one, if it's logistically impossible but finding riders that are hungry to line up at the start line for races is not going to be a problem. Um, but, you know, the, I think I'm more worried about the legal ramifications of riders living in certain countries and the conditions and whatnot that is posing a problem. than they, that, then a professional bicycle racer saying, ah, ah, it's late in the season. I don't think I really feel like going and racing in October. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, so we'll see, but a lot of exciting things. And, you know, as uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, the kind of the silver lining, the, the real surprise here was uh, on the women's side with the first ever Perry roubaix I mean, I thought that was pretty amazing. Um, and it's going to be the same exact day as the men's race. I'm not quite sure how we're going to pull that off. I talk about <laughs> talk about a complicated uh, racing thing. But I think that's really exciting to me.
0: Yeah, James, I was just going to ask you. So you have... Intimate knowledge of the inner workings of Perry roubaix because you've covered it so many times and you're a photographer, you're on the motorcycle, you're hopping around between groups. You know, you are as much a part of the race as you are somewhat covering it. I mean, when you think about adding a women's race to Perry roubaix what are the um, exciting elements but also the challenging elements that organizers are going to have to work through there?
2: Well, um, you know – a the itinerary, um, which obviously um, you know is going. I mean, if you if you look at the map of of Roubaix, once they you know it just is left, right, left, right. It's all over the place. It just snakes around. So you imagine having a women's race doing parts of it, and the men's race and crisscrossing that, and then all of the followers, all of the staff that are running from back road to back road in cars with wheel sets, and all of this. I mean, they, there's a you know tremendous amount of room just to be tripping and falling over each other and getting stuck. You know, you you get in when you think ahead of ahead of the cutoff in the men's race, but then you get stuck behind the women's race. This is something that occasionally has happened to me in Flanders because they've had several races going on at the same time. But at the end of the day, you know, um, it's going to work out and it'll be exciting. I think my biggest struggle will be like you know I would really love to be able to cover both of them. I'd love to be able to do the first women's uh the peri i think it's really exciting um but you know you're you only have so many cameras and lenses and so many arms and legs so we'll see where it goes but um i think it's really exciting it's tremendous for women's cycling uh, You know there's so much speculation that the uh the women's calendar was getting the short shrift of all of this and you know we're just focused on the world tour but in the end um you know there's some pretty good racing out there for the women too
0: yeah. One of the challenges I think about too is, yeah, with, with Roubaix and with Flanders, there's the need to have staffers along the road with spare wheels and stuff like that every, after every section. And in Flanders, it's a circuit. So, you know, you can kind of, they'll do it a couple of times. You can have people play strategically, but yeah, with Roubaix is this leapfrog because it's point to point. And so the, um, my initial reaction was like, "Oh boy, those those roads that feed the different you know get offs from the freeway to access the different parts of the course are gonna there's gonna be a lot of team cars playing uh, leapfrog to get from point to yeah, point, boy. but but it'll be cool. I mean, you know, I, I I can't wait to watch it. I love that race. I love that course. Uh, don't love the sportive. You're gonna get your bike stolen. Just say, <laughs> <laughs> um, hoodie. A question I had for you too is so you have been reaching out to riders and teams people who work for races, et cetera, et cetera. And um, what, how would you describe the sentiment that some of these um, you know, people who are placed highly in the sport are having towards the overall concept of racing coming back and the viability of it? I mean, they're the ones who are waiting on national governments and health officials to give them the green light about this. I mean, is there, is there confidence in something like this actually being able to happen? Is there more speculation? Like where are people in the sport around this overall concept?
1: Yeah, going off on what James said, you know, this is a wish list. Uh, Looking at some of the practicalities of it, you're right that there are certain things that need to happen before this bike race can happen. You know, the first thing obviously they have to do is reorganize all the routes, reorganize all the dates, you know, maybe the route will stay the same. We'll just still have to coordinate with all the different uh, communities along the routes. And, and that's a lot of legwork um, like the Welta and the Giro and some of these races have had to you know, tweak out their their routes because uh, the Budapest and the, the Holland uh, start have both been nixed for those Grand Tours. And even the Tour de France is talking about changing. I think we talked about it in the podcast a week or so ago about taking, you know, moving some of the start and finishes even further away from the historic centers. So they don't kind of create some of these bottlenecks in terms of just people. Um, So all those things have to happen. And plus, there's a lot of uh, things that happen behind the scenes that uh, just in terms of permits from governments, uh, you know, working with the police, working with safety officials, working coordinating with the local hospitals to have a hospital ready to deal with any sort of accidents on the race. And those kinds of things really take, you know, weeks and months in advance. So it's, you know, it's one thing easy enough to say, okay well, gee, we're going to move, you know move a terrain where had to go from March to August uh, or September, but something quite else in reality of just kind of, you know, these little pieces of the puzzle together again. And I was talking to some people involved with some races and they're saying how, you know, they didn't make some financial commitments that might be four, eight weeks ahead of the rescheduled start. So some of these people might make a decision saying, well, gee, you know, it's going to cost us X amount of money just to get this ball rolling again organizing all the infrastructure has to be the start and the finish, all the vans, everything that has to move around at a race, that costs money. And it's not something you can just kind of turn it on and off, you know, five days in advance. You need to do that several weeks, months in advance. And uh, some of these organizers might just make the call and say, you know what? You know, it's just not worth it for us financially. We can't afford to have the race. Um, So a lot of, you know, we might see some races that might actually have the green light, to race from the local authorities and they still might not have the race it'll be interesting to see how some of this stuff develops
2: well that's what happened at the european championships huh they were originally scheduled they were given the green light and it was the organizer said hey our you know our local government said don't really think this is going to happen so i i think that uh, you're going to see some some uh, some of these races you know I, I, I don't see all of these races happening but um but it's, it's a good starting point you know i think i mean we had, we have something constructive work with and, and, um, this is what we do and we all love and, and, um, and, you know, we're all going to, we should be happy to have whatever we can have at this point in the year. I think the main, the main thing for me is that it's, it's just, if we can, if we can have some semblance of a season, no matter almost, you know, how truncated it is. Let's say, you know, even if say the tour de France, is. uh we get ten ten days into it, and we have to call it because there's an outbreak somewhere down the road on the on the tour, and and a bunch of these races don't happen for various or uh, sundry reasons. But we still kind of limped to the finish, and at least we were able to get back into it so that we can start two twenty one on a high note. Uh, you know, if, if if this whole entire season is gone, then we're going to start. 2021 very tentatively. Um, and it's going to affect next year's racing as well. Whereas any kind of racing we can do this year, just it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's essentially like a rider who's broken his collarbone or his femur or something. And it's coming back to race in September. How many, how many cases are there like that you've seen? You, you know, they're just simply racing as much as they can to set themselves up for the following year. And maybe UCI points aren't going to be awarded. Maybe not all teams, world tour teams are going to be at every race doesn't matter. We're just trying to set ourselves up for the following year.
0: Well, it's definitely a story we're going to continue to cover here on VeloNews.com. We will be reaching out to riders, team organizers, race organizers to get their feedback. Um, Definitely check out the website over the next week because there's going to be a lot of perspective. And I imagine probably some competing perspectives uh, about this and what it means for the sport. So we have a blueprint, a plan for racing. And now (laughs) – there's a lot of work to be done before these uh, these races actually start. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk all about the Giro d'Italia, what this new schedule means for it, and the cultural significance of the Giro. Okay, we'll be right back. Today's episode of the Bell News Podcast is brought to you by Roll Massif, organizers of eight of Colorado's most iconic road, gravel, and mountain bike events. They have the events that take riders through the alpine terrain of Copper Mountain and one that takes riders through the desert landscapes of the Colorado National Monument. Regardless of the event, you are always guaranteed a great post-ride festival. Here's what I really like about Roll Massive. Uh, Roll Massive has this program to encourage kids to get out on their bikes. Anyone under the age of 18 rides for free at the road and gravel events super family-friendly, and just a great way to get uh, get your kid out rolling and see how much fun it is to participate in a big cycling event. So check it out at RollMassif.com. That is R-O-L-L-M-A-S-S-I-F.com. And listeners of the Velo News uh, podcast right now get 15% off uh, using the event code VELONEWS15 at checkout. So VELONEWS15 at checkout, RollMassif.com this special offer runs through june 1st um please check out rollmassive.com sign up for an event i know that cycling events are you know we haven't had any for a long time but i feel like these rollmassive events present a great opportunity to get back on your bike and get back having fun okay thanks to rollmassive for sponsoring this week's episode let's get back to the podcast Uh, okay, guys, the Giro d'Italia is the topic of our second segment of the show. The Giro was slated to start this coming weekend, uh, run through the rest of May. It was to be a really exciting Giro. We had a lineup of Carapaz and Nibali and Remco Evenepoel making his Grand Tour debut. We had great storylines to follow. We had a start in Hungary. Um, it had all the makings of an amazing Giro. Of course, like all the other races, it was uh, postponed, canceled, changed around once the pandemic hit. Um, But with this new schedule from the UCI, we are seeing a Giro that will be in October. Um, First question for you guys, when you did see this new schedule, where the Giro was placed on the schedule, um, what does this tell us about the Giro's place in pro cycling in general?
1: When I first look at this, it's almost like the Giro uh, lo- loses out really in a scenario because if you look at where the Tour is placed, the option of doing the Tour welta double is still in the cards. If someone wanted to, they could race the race the uh, Tour, be enough time to kind of ease into the Welta. And then having all these other races kind of conflict with the Giro. Uh, so just at first glance, it seems like that uh, – that uh, the Giro might kind of got the short end of that stick, and I hit, did hear from some sources talking this past week or so about there was a real big kind of fight behind the scenes between the Giro and the Tour organizers because UCI and a lot of other people were trying to tell the Grand Tours, you know, do the right thing, you know, let's reduce the racing by a few stages, three, four days, you know, make it kind of, uh, you know, squeeze it into kind of like the Vuelta is now, squeeze it into 18 days instead of 21 and that would have opened up some space, you know, open up an extra weekend or two for other races to have room to hold their events on the weekend. You know, instead of having a midweek classic, you could have the, you know, the race on the on the weekend like they normally are. But evidently uh, both sides kind of dug their heels in, the, the Giro and the Tour, that you know, they've been fighting really behind the scenes for years. The Tour said, "No, no, we're insisting on our full schedule." And the Giro said, "Well, if the Tour's not going to reduce its days, we're not reducing our days." And so that's kind of what we got left, this kind of like hodgepodge calendar. I think had all three grand tours kind of shrunk down a few days, there would have been a lot more space in this calendar to make it a little bit more coherent. So I think that's why we're kind of seeing a little bit of this calendar not really being as streamlined as it could have been. But, um, you know, what does it say about the Giro? I mean, the Giro is the Giro, it's uh, it's, it's kind of its, its own unique creature. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, if the Giro is completed – of all the countries, I think, the Giro in Italy, to me, present the biggest hurdle to actually have the race finish. Because just knowing what we know about Italy Italy, and how bad the the virus is in parts of Italy, um, if the Giro makes it all the way to the finish line intact, I will be surprised.
2: Yeah. Um, They – Interesting. They just uh, they just released a press release that came through and it's clear that they're frustrated. Um they said that they made a number of alternative proposals which are in their own opinion would have resulted in a reduction in the overlapping of the racing calendar, but the, the their proposals were not adapted. They stand by the current uh schedule, of course, and are, are uh are positive. Um but they were clearly frustrated uh by that. Um do they lose out? I certainly understand what you say, uh Andy. Um people who want to ride ride the classics can ride the tour. Uh, Guys who want to do a tour of the Double can do that. But people who want to do the the Giro have to make a distinct decision. Uh, It's not everybody that can win the Tour of Italy, and it's a pretty great race to win on any Palmares. And not everybody is going to be able to win the Tour de France, and probably even less this year because there's going to be such a concentration. I think that, you know these races these great races they're like great wine even in an off year they still produce a great race the giro is going to be a great race um i mean the giro racing in italy in october that sounds pretty great i know like autumn falling the race of the falling leaves you know is now a three-week race i I can deal with that um it's you know we're gonna have some bad weather in the mountains um as we do in may in, in italy uh so we'll see where it goes but um I you know I I'm, I look forward to being able to do the Giro in 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 October. I think it'd be just tremendous.
0: Yeah, it looks like if you're a Giro racer, you're going to be doing uh, Torino Adriatico September 7th through 14th, um, and then that's like your warm-up race, and then you're, uh then you're hitting the Giro, and then you'll probably do if you're if you still got some uh, strength left in the legs, you'll do Lombardia. Although, oh, doing Lombardia the weekend after finishing. This crusher of a Giro, that's going to be a hard one. Um I think, yeah. To me, what what's missing out for the Giro is the fact that, you know, the hilly classics, the Ardennes races, a lot of times were this warm up for the Giro, where you saw guys who were really, you know, trying to head into the Giro on really good form. You know, Nibali, sometimes Contador, guys who would do Amstel Gold, um, Flesh and Liège, and maybe not win it, but like you know, be there to sort of sharpen the spear before the Giro. You'd see that kind of run in, and now those races are overlapping with the Giro, so there's not going to be any any overlap, or there's not going to be any like hilly classics into Giro d'Italia. But you know, I, you, the fact that it's, it's on the calendar and it's, you know, like you said, James, a beautiful time to be in Italy. I, I'm I'm pretty excited for that.
1: Uh, another interesting twist in this whole calendar, improvised calendar, is I think everyone. I've already been hearing this from a few people I've talked to. Everyone will be racing every race as if it's their last race. Because you'll never know when something might go off the rails, right? So you're into into week two of the Tour. Say up to then, everything's going pretty well. But who knows? There might be an outbreak in France, or there might be an outbreak in Italy. There might be an outbreak in Spain. So all of those countries could have could be shut down at a moment's notice. So I've already been hearing this from teams, been hearing this from the riders. They're going to be racing every day as if, if it's like the end of the season. And just like uh, at last year's Tour de France, we saw – you know, you get in that trap, if you're waiting, 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 you never really know what's going to happen with the weather. And last year's Tour de France was very marked by those last two mountain stages in the Alps being neutralized, which had a major impact on the outcome of the race. So imagine that on a scale of a global pandemic, so you're going to get this dynamic, this weird dynamic of riders coming into these races, not fully prepared and kind of this chaotic way into the race. And plus, in the back of their minds thinking, well, gee, you know, maybe we're not racing next week. So it's just going to be balls to the walls racing, just completely unscripted. Yeah, I think it's just going to make for one of the most craziest seasons we've ever seen.
2: <laughs> I it is. I mean, it's like nobody's going to give up the yellow jersey uh, if they get it too early in the race, right? <laughs> but getting back to the Giro, I mean, uh, yeah, well, I think it was Andy said, you know, of all the races, if they can actually pull the Giro off after everything that Italy's gone through, uh, it's going to be, I mean, it's going to be pretty amazing. And, and you know, it is such a beautiful race. We've been doing uh, some some stories about it, and uh, the fans there are so. So, you know, uh, the osi, as we know, I mean, they're not on summer vacation. They take days off of their own work to, to be out there and, and they're really passionate. And not everybody who does a Giro says it's, you know, it's just it's one of the great races. So it'll be I, th- I, I, re- I think the Giro is going to be just fine. Um, and uh, even though, you know, they might not have the best space in the calendar. So. When I have spoken to riders about the Giro from a
0: 30,000-foot perspective, basically the question of compare it to the Tour, compare it to the Welta, you know, which Grand Tour is your favorite, which is the hardest, which is the best organized, which is the best whatever, the continual continual feedback I've gotten about the Giro is that it is the favorite Grand Tour of riders because of the creature comforts. Yes, it's... Very difficult racing and yes, you know, a lot of the things you've read about it on the site, how some of, you know, the Tour and the WeltA have adopted shorter stages, harder stages, lots of punchy finishes where the Giro is still, you know, long 220K, 250K days, huge slogs through the mountains. People are arriving at the finish on their knees. Um, yet the creature comforts tend to be a little bit better than the other races. You know, the food, Every, you hear the riders talk about how much they love racing the Giro because they know they're going to get three weeks of really great food. The roads, you know, there's some of these roads that, yeah, there's, you know, train tracks rolling through them or they're kind of cracked up and broken, but some of these roads through the Dolomites and through the Alps are really well maintained. They're beautifully engineered. The, the just the riding is spectacular. Um, and then, the fans and the hospitality of staying in these hotels, and sort of, you know, when you're, when what you do for a living is race bikes and go to different hotels, you start to think of, you know, where are there, where's their variance? And there's variance in the hotels. And people think, wow. And, and you know, when I do the, the Giro, just like the comfort that I get is greater than at the Vuelta and, uh, and at the tour. I'm curious if you guys have gotten similar or different feedback from riders on this.
2: Well, I, I can tell you one thing. No cyclist has ever come to France to eat the pasta. <laughs> 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 or, drink <laughs> the <coffee. laughs> or drink the coffee. Or drink the coffee. They they admit that the baguettes and cheese are great, but it doesn't usually uh, fit in with the modern cycling diet. So, you know, it says what it says. Uh, yes, we like to uh, reduce our gluten, but only when we're not in Italy. <laughs> uh, simply, yeah. Uh, there's so many good stories
1: that comes out of the Giro in terms of team hotels. Uh, last several years, we've been piggybacking on uh, the booking agency with RCS. We have been staying almost every night with uh, kind of coinciding with different teams. It's not the same team every night. We'll get different teams on different nights. So, you know, like last year we coincided with, uh, you know, Trek. They won a stage. You get to see how the team celebrates. Uh, then the next night you're with a team. It's all downtrodden and uh, you know gloomy around the dinner table. Uh-huh. My fa- my favorite story about uh, the Giro, I think it was the 2014 Giro. Uh, I think it was my old colleague, our, uh, Matt Bowden, now works uh, EF Education First. I'm pretty sure it was Matt. Maybe Kelly Fretz. We were uh, up in the uh, up in the Dolomiti, and it was that year uh, that uh, that Quintana won when he attacked over the Stelvio with uh, against Iran and took the pink jersey. So that night we had stayed in the team hotel. And we walked in real late at night. and you know, We didn't get to the hotel until almost 10 o'clock. Great thing about Italy is the kitchens are still open and they'll wait for you. And uh, we roll in we sit down and have dinner in the, in, the, in the dining room. And we coincided with Mitchelton Scott. And at that point of the race, they had a great first part of that race. I think they got the pink jersey with uh, Swain Tuft. They won uh, a couple stages. They had the jersey for a week. And, but at that point of the race, they had, I think they had two riders left. So it was Swain <laughs> Tuft. And maybe, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, maybe three or two at that point. But they had the entire team and staff were still there. So they had all the Swannies, all the mechanics, all the bus drivers to support a nine-man team uh, in those days. Only two left. So we sat down next to Swain. And we started to talk to him. And then uh, the table at Mitchelton Scott erupts into a happy birthday. Happy birthday. Da-da-da-da-da. And then the owner of the of the inn comes over. Ah, Tutti para tutti gives away free shots to everybody and free cakes and desserts for the guy's birthday. And then Swain and the riders are laughing. We're like, what's going on? And he goes, oh, they do that every night. They pretend it's someone's birthday so they can get free shots. <laughs> of free cake. So those, are, those are the kinds of things that happen during the Giro. Uh, nice. Yeah,
0: especially when you only have a, a couple of riders uh, left to go. That's great. I think I'm going to try that out
2: uh, the next time about the Giro. Oh. Yeah, Look uh, you know I, Andy's done it much more than I have. I've strangely only done days here and there at the Giro, but I look very forward to to doing it this year. I think something else that I'd
0: heard from riders was that, look, there's a lot of pressure at the Giro to win it. You know, you want to win a stage, you want to win the race. It's like any grand tour, there's a ton of pressure to win. but the level of pressure is a, is a couple of degrees ratcheted down from the Tour de France. So, Look, we've all covered the tour a million times. We know how nervous riders are, how many fans there are, how, you know, when you are talking to a rider, they seem to have – like the hair is kind of standing up on the back of their neck because they know that there's – the world is watching them. If they say something stupid, if they say something wrong, whatever, there can be a backlash and whatever. Whereas the riders have said they like the Giro a little bit more because you have the – all the splendor of a Grand Tour but not the same level of operating under – the microscope
1: yeah that's a very good observation for it that's exactly right the media pressure the intensity of the fans just the pressure from all the sponsors and the team ds's to get something out of the tour really just that's what really makes the tour so intense is that all that pressure is piled on from all sides and the Jiro is a little more relaxed um you know riders often that you know that'll be their first uh grand tour debut you know so they bring in mixed squads they'll bring in uh sprinters to go to those races bring in young riders bring in riders you know just chasing mountain jerseys mountain stages so it's a little bit different vibe uh at the giro compared to the tour and really is you know at the same time at the giro you'll have it a little more relaxed but the chaos level is much higher in terms of uh just kind of it's almost everything's like impromptu it's like going to a dinner party and you just straighten the tie right before you walk in why before you walk into the dinner party, as opposed to having everything ready well before you get to the dinner party. That's how the Giro kind of is organized. It just seems like, uh, it's, it's kind of controlled chaos and they call it, an uh, in Italian casino. It's like, uh, kind of just crazy kind of like things on the edge of a breakdown. And you see that every day, the Giro, but they pull it off, you know, they pull it off every day and the race is great. Cause what's great about the Giro. And we've mentioned this before, how the tour has gotten so big and it's kind of lost its charm. The tour, Or the Giro still brings the uh, race really into the heart of these old towns, these little narrow finish lines, like you see, you know, like at Strata Bianca, where they just kick in up that little narrow hill in the hilltop town, kick it into the piazza at Siena. They basically do that every day at the Giro. All these finishes are absolutely spectacular, places where you never really could take the Tour de France because it has gotten so big. So the Giro, I think, deserves a lot of credit for kind of keeping that closeness to the fans. And, you know, really, it's just such an emotional race. Ah, uh, one that, as you agree, as you mentioned already, that it's a favorite among the riders, among the staffers, among uh, you know, among the journalists. You know, it's my favorite stage race of the year, without a doubt. Just in terms of going there, because at the same time, it's enjoyable, but it's also really emotional. It's the race still counts a lot. It's usually yeah. a very, I mean, the last couple of years, the Giro has been the most exciting race of the year, in my opinion.
2: Yeah. Well, the the thing about the Giro uh, is that it is. You know, traditionally earlier in the season, the weather plays a bigger role. The roads aren't as good, and it's just so much more unpredictable. And and it has that that and how you know it can get it can you know turn upside down. On the last weekend, it happened. Uh, you know, when Chris Froome pulled his victory out, uh, it happened when Nibali got his last victory. It's it's crazy, but it you know what I think it's been interesting to watch um, the Giro evolve. Um, I was just talking with Bernard Hinault today, actually, and. He won the race three times, obviously. And he was like, you know, heck, when I was doing it, it was really an Italian race. And a Frenchie like me would go down there, and it was me against the, all the Italians. It was really hard to win, but it was really nationalistic. And Philippe Brunel, who did a story with us, uh, who have been talking to this week, said, you know, heck, when we were uh, when we were there, you know, uh, we were having beer cans thrown at us on the climbs. It was very nationalistic. Uh, and, and it has evolved into – Really, you know, this international, uh, hugely international event. And it's and, the, and it has grown so much on an international scope and brings in consistently so many international stars uh, that it's, it's – it's, 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 and yet, like you said, Andy, they managed to maintain the beauty and history of, of the, the finishes right downtown and these little visuals and stuff. I'm a little worried about that right now for security measures, distancing that might might com- be compromised this year. I'm hoping not. Um, But I'm very excited about it. Now, we obviously haven't seen any teams
0: put out, you know, rosters or revised strategies for the Giro this year. But um, what were your uh, what were the storylines you were most interested in heading into this year's Giro? I mean, it's kind of hard to go back in the way back machine to six, eight weeks ago when we still had a Giro on the calendar. But, you know, when we looked at the 2020 Giro as it was, what were you really looking forward to about it?
2: Well, um, we, you know, we had divvied it up, who was going to cover what, and I, I said I really wanted to go do the, the beginning of it. I was excited to go to Budapest, but that's not going to happen. I was excited to follow um, Peter Sagan uh, going to the Giro, and, you know, Budapest was, is, is close to Slovakia, so he was, he was counting on having tons of fans. So, I mean, between all the Saganites and, and that whole exotic uh, new start, I think that was going to tr- be tremendous. And then I just love Sicily, so going from there down to Sicily, uh, well, I was just in, you know, I was, I was in, uh, I was in seventh heaven, but, um, and we don't know where it's going to start now. So we'll see. I'm, I'm hoping of course that, um, they're just going to spend a week, uh, in early October in Sicily. That's okay with me. <laughs> maybe,
1: uh, maybe Fred will go instead of you, James.
2: No, I, I, I think there's probably going to be some travel restrictions there.
1: <laughs> yeah. The stories I was looking forward to were, uh, You know, Sagan's first Giro was a good one. Uh, Just for me, uh, Remco. I mean, that kid just uh, continues to surprise me just to see what he could have done in his first Giro. You know, all those time trials. You know, I think he probably could have done fairly well. And, you know, Grand Tour debut, you know, sometimes uh, guys like Remco with such class can pull out a big surprise and maybe not win it, but it could be in the thick of things, get the jersey early and maybe, you know, finish close to the podium. And then also I was interested to see uh, Bardet, a writer that I'm really interested in just as a kind of a human being. He seems to be one of the more sensible intellectual kind of guys in the Peloton. You can talk about politics with that guy or a book you read. Um, Mm -hmm. And he was supposed to be doing the the Giro this year uh, instead of the Tour. So, yeah, I mean, the Giro never, never, Giro never, ever has a lack of stories. And a lot of stories just happen on the road, you know, like what happened, uh, you know, with the Chris Froome attack a couple of years ago, just turned the race upside down. Uh, things like that, with the the Quintana attack over the Stelvio, or not the Stelvio, it was over, uh, uh, excuse me, what, you, yeah, I can't remember, I'm sorry, I can't remember what, what, where the attack, it wasn't over the Stelvio, but uh, but then, uh, you know, I just remember the year uh, Ryder Hedgedahl won, uh, you know, that was such a big surprise, and that was a great race down to the end, and I remember Alan Piper, uh, you know, we're asking like uh, Alan Piper, the sport director there back in the day, you know, how is Ryder Hesjedal handling the stress? And his famous line was, Ryder is so laid back, he's horizontal. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that kind of, that kind of uh, sums up the Giro right there. Wow,
2: that's
0: the storyline I was really looking forward to. Yeah, I was really looking forward to Redco and Sagan as well. And then um, our contributor, Rebecca Reza, filed this interview she did with uh, Carapaz with Richard Carapaz. And you know, I, when you, it, it's always diff- a little difficult for me to like, get to know the Spanish speaking um, riders because of the language barrier and not a ton of personality can come A lot of times these translations, a lot of the personality gets drummed out. And then I read this um, interview that Rebecca did with Ruth Carapaz and she did it at the Tour of Columbia where he's this big celebrity and was impossible to get any time with, but he made opportunity and did this interview. And he gave some insight on what was going on behind the scenes with Movistar last year and how improbable it was for him to have won that Giro and how Landa was the team leader. And, you know, this Movistar documentary comes out on Netflix and you get to have some insight into the team. And I, I was, I was really interested to see how Carapaz was going to handle being the man under the microscope. Not just, you know, last year he kind of came in as a dark horse. I mean, he's obviously strong, but he stormed to a Jira win. Nibbly and um, and Roglic were looking at each other and, and he was able to sort of escape for the win. And, and seeing his perspective on how he was treated at Movistar, seeing his perspective on how he was treated during the Giro itself made me really, really want to see how Carapaz was going to operate as an undisputed team leader, whether we were going to see, you know, the letdown of, okay, the guy already accomplishes something, accomplishes something maybe beyond his wildest dreams. And so he's good. Or if he was going to rise to the occasion and say, Hey, you know, this is, I am at that level. I want to be at that. I want to be a dominant rider and come
2: out and dominate. Well, Fred, um, when it comes to to drama and, uh, and 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 team gossip, I think you could make a movie about the movie star team. Actually, I think one was just made. But uh, so yeah, their, their sense of strategy and and, and politics is, is really uh, quite strange. Um, but uh, I think there's. I think you could be very happy, uh, and I think you'll. Uh, I, I think Carapaz can very well be back there to defend his title. I'd be surprised if he's not, and I, and I wouldn't be surprised to see Remco there. I, I think I would be surprised to see Saga in there, since you'd have to miss so many classics. And Bardet's pretty much already said that he's not going to—you know—he's going to be doing the, the Tour de France. Um, but you know, there's it's the Giro d'Italia. There's going to be just great stories. Well, guys, I think that's a good place to
0: end it. You know, we have a—we have a blueprint a schedule and we're going to be digging into that and talking to riders about it and keeping our eyes on it and revisiting it both on the site and on the podcast for weeks to come so thank you to James Start thank you to Andrew Hood we're happy to hear that you guys are both healthy and that you are having eased restrictions we'll be going out outside soon Uh, so for Andrew Hood and James Start this is Fred Dreyer thanks for tuning in we'll catch up with you next week